Risk assessments for ovarian tumors are ever-evolving as advances in diagnostic imaging and biomarker developments pave the way. What are the current views on ovarian tumor risk assessment, and how should they be incorporated into clinical practice? You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit in Chicago is Dr. Fred Euland. He's professor of obstetrics and gynecology and director of gynecologic oncology at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Euland, welcome to the program today. Thank you, Dr. Bernholtz. Appreciate it. So to start, many of our listeners will hear ovarian cancer and immediately form a pretty bleak picture of its high incidence, its high mortality rates. Uh, what can you tell us about this, and why is it so hard to catch early? Well, good question. Ovarian cancer um, is not a very common or prevalent cancer. However, it is a lethal cancer when it's found in its advanced stages. So the goal and the challenge of the clinician is to find it in early stage. And up until recently, we haven't had a lot of great tools for that. But some new developments in the last few years have improved our ability to detect early cancer. You know, ovary cancer doesn't begin to produce identifiable symptoms until the latter stages, where there's a lot of abdominal swelling and early satiety and some pelvic discomfort. And that's when women begin to identify that there's a problem and go see their doctor, but often it's late-stage disease. These are very diffuse generalized symptoms, too. That's right. Specific. They're easily mistaken for other problems, irritable bowel syndrome, urinary tract infection, and other things. So it's easy uh, to ignore some of those symptoms until it's a little bit late. And when we move into the, the realm of diagnosis, one question that's going to come up immediately, because you yourself are a gynecologic oncologist, who should be spearheading the care delivery? Because that's often been up for debate. Maybe not debate, but it's been contentious at times. Well, it's pretty clear from the NIH statement 20 years ago that the GYN oncologist should be involved in the surgery and care of a patient with ovary cancer. The trick, though, Matt, is to identify those patients uh, so that GYN oncologists can be involved because there are probably 250,000 doctors if you consider the, the family practitioners and the general surgeons and the OBGYNs who are all evaluating some of these women. But the hard thing is to identify which ones have the malignancies in order to get them referred to the GYN oncologist before the operation, not after because the operation is one of the most critical points of care in these women, having the right aggressive surgery, doing the proper staging. And it turns out the majority of women aren't getting those operations, and fewer than 40% are getting NCCN-compliant care, according to Bristow's recent publication in uh, 2013. So that's kind of concerning when they're not getting the right operation, not getting the right chemotherapy. What do you typically attribute that to? What you mentioned is difficult to identify. Maybe there's some educational issues where the docs aren't really aware or thinking about the high risk and importance of getting these women to the GYN oncologist. And then the tools available are somewhat disparate. In, in the U.S., there's not a single evaluation algorithm that everyone is using. For instance, multiple specialties are doing sonography. So all ultrasounds are not the same. There are family practitioners and OBGYNs and, of course, the radiologists all doing it a little differently. And there needs to be better standardization. In fact, we're going to meet in New York this weekend for a consensus conference, an international consensus conference, to, to discuss some of these matters. But in addition to ultrasound, biomarkers are being used incorrectly or not used at all. And I think they can aid also in the diagnosis. It seems like there's a wide variance in the standards that people employ from the OBGYN realms to the surgery realms to the GYN oncologist realms as far as what they respectively think is the best standards of care for diagnosis and then treatment. Yeah, I think I think as specialists we have to do a better job of clarifying what the best algorithm is. And once we do that, then we just have to educate everybody and the whole system will work better. Maybe we can have a better success rate of identifying early cancers and getting them all to the GYN oncologist promptly for proper care. Let's move in on the algorithms, but before we do that, maybe you could take us through uh, sort of a walkthrough for some of the procedural steps 
for evaluating ovarian tumors for cancer. Obviously, the very, very basic level, you're starting with the bimanual examination, but then it gets progressively uh, more complex from there. What can you tell us? Well, uh, the bimanual examination has always been sort of the hallmark of the annual uh, uh, female examination. Turns out not very effective at identifying ovaries or, or measuring their size. It's still an important part of the examination, but if the goal is to identify ovary cancer, it is not a sensitive detector. So ultrasound is the next step. I think almost everybody agrees upon that. It's relatively cost-effective. You can determine so much about the risk of an ovarian tumor by a real high-level quality initial ultrasound. And then after that, clinicians will begin to order or do whatever is available or however they were trained. And it may include a CAT scan or an MRI. It may include biomarkers. And it really becomes quite disparate at that point. But the ultrasound, I think, is what we need to really offer clear guidelines on. And then from there, there'll be a group of indeterminate tumors that ultrasound really, based on morphology alone, can't give us the answer. And I think that's an opportunity for biomarkers to help complement ultrasound findings. And that makes sense. But even within the ultrasound realm, there are at least three parties that sort of want to claim dominance in terms of who is to perform it. You have the technicians, you have your OBGYNs, and you have your ultrasound radiologists. Um, how do you address the communicative gaps that sometimes emerge there? It would be awful nice to have it, just a uniform guideline. doesn't seem that difficult to me. Um, although everybody is trained and credentialed differently, we can still offer sort of a simple, basic guideline for everyone to utilize. And I think we're getting pretty close to that. Once we have that, I think all recommendations will be similar. And you mentioned uh, MR imaging with CAT scan. Obviously, the cost with MR imaging is very, very high on the healthcare system. When do you feel strongly about moving forward with, with the more aggressive diagnostic tests? So in terms of determining high-risk versus low-risk ovarian tumors, I think ultrasound provides almost all the information we need, plus or minus biomarkers. For me, CAT scan utility before surgery should be reserved for those women who I think do have ovary cancer. And to try to determine whether they need an operation up front or chemotherapy first, that's neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and just determine the extent of the disease. In terms of a, a diagnostic tool to detect high-risk tumors, it seems uh, cost ineffective to me. I mean, it really is far more expensive than even serial sonography or serial biomarkers. And what about biopsies? You know, it's funny. In other cancer types, biopsies are considered gold standards. You hear about them all the time. But it seems that this generally isn't the case for ovarian masses. Why is that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so biopsies for solid tumors, uh, let's say an enlarged lymph node in the neck, a biopsy of that has a high diagnostic accuracy and doesn't disseminate the disease. But uh, an ovarian tumor is almost invariably a cystic tumor. So if you introduce a needle into the cyst, drainage of that cystic fluid is likely, or even rupture of the entire cystic tumor, and thereby spreading the, uh, the malignant cells within the cyst is a concern. And that not only changes the stage, but it, it changes the prognosis. Patients have a, a worse prognosis if there's tumor rupture prior to surgery. So, so that's the primary concern. But the yield isn't as good either. If you have a cystic tumor and you're trying to get cells from the wall of the cyst, more than half the time you don't achieve enough cells in the, in the aspiration to get a diagnosis. Very different than a solid tumor biopsy or a lymph node biopsy. So lower accuracy and the risk of spread for the disease before the actual operation. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm joined by Dr. Fred Ulin from the University of Kentucky. We're talking about current views on ovarian tumor risk assessment. So, Dr. Ulin, let's turn to the molecular biomarkers because that's been a hot area that you've been interested in speaking about. And think about it with regards to ovarian tumor assessment. 
Where do they factor into practice? Well, CA125 has been the most studied and best understood biomarker for ovary cancer. Over 30 years ago, it was introduced by Bob Bast in 1983, and it really has revolutionized how physicians care for women with ovary cancer. The problem is CA125 is not a very sensitive biomarker for certain types of presentations. Young, young women, early stage cancers frequently don't have elevations um, or have falsely elevated levels of CA125. Uh, and even in women with advanced cancer, about 20% of them won't have an elevated CA125 in mucinous tumors or clear cell tumors or other undifferentiated tumors. So there's some gaps in the success of this biomarker. However, it's been a terrific biomarker in the sense of monitoring patients with the disease. It's just not a great diagnostic tool. And other so, conditions also seem to raise CA125 levels, is that right? Sure, that's exactly right. So most of these biomarkers are not specific only to cancer and not specific only to ovary cancer and CA125 is no exception to that. It's elevated for non-gynecologic reasons as well as non-malignant reasons in females. For instance, endometriosis, pregnancy, fibroids, for other cases of inflammatory bowel disease, diverticulitis, non-malignant ascites, the list goes on and on. There, there are probably 30 different causes for elevation of CA125 that are not specific to ovary cancer. So pretty high risk of false positives. Some so. false positives, yes. And, uh, and if it were a highly sensitive test, that is, it wouldn't miss many cancers, it would be acceptable, I think. But unfortunately, it's, uh, its sensitivity suffers uh, also. Less than 75%, all stages combined, but certainly in young women and early stage disease, it's down to uh, 30 to 50%. So... Mm. Uh, that's too many misses. What about other biomarkers? Anything else that's kind of come to save the day? Yeah, recently, 2011, the FDA cleared OVA-1, which is a new uh, type of biomarker, really. Uh, it was the first ever multivariate index assay cleared by the FDA because it combines more than one protein into a single test. There are actually five uh, proteins that are evaluated in that test. It was also the first ever preoperative ovarian tumor biomarker uh, ever cleared by the FDA. So it was a it was a big hitter, really, a home run. And then two years later, the FDA cleared ROMA, which is a combination of two biomarkers, CA125 and HE4. So those two, ROMA and uh, OVA1, are available for the preoperative evaluation to be used in conjunction with ultrasound and the clinician's assessment. That is the physician's best judgment. The challenge with ROMA is it still suffers a little bit from a lower sensitivity in early stage disease in premenopausal women compared to OVA1. So those are the two that are really available right now. And both of them use, I imagine, a proprietary algorithm to help establish the risk assessment. As the practitioner, from your point of view, is that an aid or is that a frustration in not being able to necessarily know exactly how the multivariate risk assessment is done? I'm not sure it's a big factor. Roma has an online algorithm, and the laboratory produces uh, the result for you, which is high risk or low risk. Oval One's a proprietary algorithm, but in the end it does the same, which is tells the clinician whether it's high or low risk. Mm. And, um, and although the Oval One levels do correlate with risk of malignancy pretty directly, the actual result is just given as high or low risk. In fact, for most clinicians, I think that's the answer they want. Does this patient need to be referred or not? And for Oval One, the negative predictive value is so high that if the test is negative, the gynecologic surgeon is comfortable retaining the patient, doing the operation, and malignancy is rarely, rarely present. So that's one of the big powers of that test is its high negative predictive value. And so for me, I think the clinician wants really a dichotomous result. They want to know yes or no, refer or keep. That's the answer. So I think the binary result is actually effective. And have these tests which help enable that, have they penetrated into practice very far at this point? Because it sounds like that would go a long way towards alleviating some of these community of gaps 
involved in the standards of practice for when people should move on a referral versus not? It's hard to know how much private care providers in smaller communities are using OVA-1. There's some availability issues in terms not all labs can perform the OVA-1 test, and I think the Vermillion, the company that produces OVA-1, is working on that, of course. That's a barrier that has to be solved. There's some cost issues. It's over $600, but when you consider the cost of life and you consider the cost of a second operation if the patient with ovary cancer doesn't make it to the G1 oncologist before the initial surgery, then it's money well spent. So I think it takes time. You know, it really takes time for these new tests to permeate smaller communities. But I think in the end, if we come up with the right recommendations and clear recommendations, I think I think we can do it. Well, why don't we turn back to that subject of algorithms uh, for determining malignancy risks here? Because based on everything you said, it sort of seems like the the Wild West or the Great Frontier uh, to some extent. There are lots of indexes, lots of reputable sources. What can we take away from these algorithms, and who do they help most, and at what stages of cancer development? Yeah, so almost all the algorithms are great at identifying advanced stage cancers. And it's important. A woman with an advanced stage cancer needs to be identified, needs to be referred to a GYN oncologist. They need to get the right operation, and they need to get the right chemotherapy. Um, so finding these cancers is important. But, but the potential life years gained in those situations is relatively small. They're generally older women, and you may uh, improve survival by uh, a couple of years on average. And all those algorithms are unfortunately missing a lot of the early stage cancers where survival is 95%, so the potential life years gained are huge and also having troubles identifying these cancers in younger women. The younger women under age 50 produce the vast majority of these tumors, and still 20% of the malignancies are in that group. So that's the group you have to at least have better performance in if we're going to improve outcomes, in my opinion. If you want to flip the survival curve and really increase the success of these early cases, I think we've got to find the early cancers. And OVA-1 is one way of doing that. Careful ultrasound is another way of doing that. I think serial ultrasound, that is performing more than one ultrasound and comparing them as we go, is a way of identifying the physiology of the tumor, just like a biomarker might identify the physiology of the tumor. You do a single ultrasound in a young woman or an old woman, you're less likely to understand sort of is the tumor growing or what are its underlying characteristics that might make it uh, more likely to be malignant or not. Well, it's a great closing thought, but before we wrap up, anything else you want to impart to our audience on this subject? I think bear with us. We're going to have some uh, recommendations relatively soon, so we're looking forward to having better recommendations and updating, I think, the American College guidelines. ACOG did a terrific job in 2002 of uh, beginning to identify referral guidelines that would be helpful to the clinicians. And what we need to do, I think, is improve upon those guidelines and really modernize them, bring them up to date, with modern technology. With that, I very much want to thank my guest, Dr. Fred Eulin, for helping us explore ovarian cancer risk assessments. It's great to have you with us today, Dr. Eulin. Matt, thanks so much. <laughs> this is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. For comments and questions or to download this interview, visit us at ReachMD.com. And thanks again for listening.